Hello and welcome to the Chasing Society podcast. Today we're going to talk about one of the absolute giants of sociology, Talcott Parsons. And we're going to start with his very first big book, the two-volume The Structure of Social Action. Get ready. So before we start, let me first give you a little bit of background to that book, because it's quite important, even though um, I believe it's not really read anymore. <laughs> so it's more like people know about it and know how important it was. But I don't believe that many people who end up having a sociology degree of some sorts have actually read it. So there's a lot of, let's say, cliche views out there. And I think this is oftentimes falling quite short of the depth and the sophistication of Parsons' work. Now, before I start, be reminded that I will have references to secondary literature in the description of this episode, and I always recommend that you consult those books and texts as well, because, well, my reading is certainly my reading, but not everybody's reading, and I'm pretty sure that you will find additional interesting information when you look at those texts yourself. So, with that out of the way, let's go. The Structure of Social Action was published in 1937, so quite some time ago. And according to Joas and Knöbel, it was actually discovered much later by the scientific community. Anyhow, let's start from the very beginning. What is this book about? So the easy answer would be it's a book about Alfred Marshall, Willifredo Pareto, Max Weber and Emil Durkheim. But you guessed it, it's a little bit more than that. Now, frankly, it is about those four people, predominantly, but it is, of course, not simply a summary of their thought. It's a summary with a purpose. You can read it as a history of ideas, of sorts, or a history of sociological ideas, because Parsons walks us through what he believes to be four eminent sociological thinkers. Now, they have not necessarily called themselves sociologists, and even today, I don't believe that at least half of them would be referred to as sociologists. But for Parsons, that doesn't really matter, because what they did was something that is sociologically relevant. So they contributed theoretically to sociology whether they like it or not. <laughs> but it's more than just presenting those thinkers and giving them due credit, so to say. Parsons wants more. And what Parsons wants to do is he wants to show that those four thinkers have independently of each other recognized that something was not really adding up in previous thoughts about human action. But that's not everything. And what really distinguishes Parsons' book from other critiques or summaries of critiques of thinkers is that he also claims that they have not only seen a similar problem, but also come up with similar solutions within their own theoretical framework. And they have done so without having contact to each other, right? So all four of them have 
developed thoughts in their theorizing as a critique of previous thoughts. And they did not only share the critique, but they also shared the solution, even though they put different words and labels on it. Parsons writes, quote, the structure of social action analyzed a process of convergent theoretical development which constituted a major revolution in the scientific analysis of social phenomena, end quote. So in other words, there were four people, at least, who converged in their theoretical findings or in their theoretical progress that they have made. So what was this magical convergence then? Let's first remember that the book is called The Structure of Social Action. So it's not called The Structure of Society, it's called The Structure of Social Action, which means that the book looks at social action. Wow, right? So not really a revelation, but important to keep in mind throughout this entire episode and those that will follow. But why not society? Well, ultimately, for Parsons, but also others like Max Weber, society shows itself in social action. So we, of course, we know that we cannot observe society directly because as a material being, it doesn't really exist, right? Society is visible only indirectly. And Parsons and others argue that its most important realm is action, or in that case, of course, social action. So in order to understand society, we need to understand social action. But there is another problem related to social action, and that is the problem of social order. This can be understood if we go back to Thomas Hobbes and the Leviathan, and that is, in fact, also what Parsons is doing. So what was Thomas Hobbes' argument? It is a bit through the back door that we come back to Talcott Parsons here, but you will understand it in a second. So Thomas Hobbes argued that human beings are, by default, egoistic and only interested in fulfilling their own needs and desires. And these desires are, of course, also egoistic, right? So if humans could do as they please, if they were not constrained, not restricted from behaving in the way that serves them best, it would automatically lead to a situation of a war of all against all. So everybody would essentially start fighting against each other because you only care about yourself and you will get what you want on the expense of all others because you simply don't care, because you're egoistic. So Thomas Hobbes then argued that order must be provided by a third party, right? So I don't really believe he thought of a government in the sense that we think about it today. So it was a Leviathan, as he called it, which quite likely could have been some form of monarch or a constitutional monarchy or whatever it is. Important thing is, in order to get order in society, you need someone, some external force that constrains people and that makes sure that these egoistic bastards don't take what they want to have. But the problem with that assumption is that this situation, this thought experiment of Thomas Hobbes, which he calls a thought experiment, is in fact nothing more than that. It's a thought experiment because never has anyone seen that. There was never a situation where this type of war of all against all has existed. You can go all the way back to the Paleontolithic age and for all we know, 
this situation of a war of all against all between human beings has never existed. So, well, you could basically debunk at least the assumption about human nature that Hobbes is making on the basis of no evidence, right? Even though we have a implicit idea that human beings are egoistic, this is actually not true. <laughs> human beings are usually quite social. But that's not even what Parsons is getting at. What Parsons is pointing out is that on the basis of pure utility maximization, of utility calculation, if these were the actors that we would be facing, right? Which is most likely not the case because this is not the human default. But of course we know that human beings from time to time and some more often than others do act egoistically and mainly focused on their own ends. But anyhow, if we just assume for a moment that human beings would be purely egoistic, utility-maximizing actors and nothing else. Even in that situation, we would not be able to create a reliable social order. Why? Think about it. Now, let's take a leviathan in form of a, let's say, a king or a queen, just like to make it a bit simpler. So think about this leviathan knocking on everyone's door, saying, hey, I have a deal for you. If you promise me to not hurt anyone, to not kill anyone, to not steal from anyone, I will make sure that no one else is stealing from you or killing you or doing anything to you as well. How does that sound? Sure, we would probably say, yeah, sounds like a deal, I'm in. So the Leviathan does this with everyone, knocks on every door and gets the agreement from everyone. And we even allow this Leviathan to get a police, prisons, or whatever have you, so that this order can be enforced if needed, or at least that the Leviathan can threaten people enough so that they would not even dare to try. Sounds like a pretty good deal, and sounds as if this would probably result in a stable order. We have made a social contract. Now Parsons now comes in and tells us, uh-uh, this is not going to result in a stable social order, not in a stable, reliable social order. Even if everybody gives their agreement, this is not enough. Why? Well, there's actually a million reasons why, if you think about it. You don't even need Talcott Parsons to tell you that. Um, Parsons gives a number of reasons for it, and we may or may not stumble upon a few of them in the course of these episodes now. But, I mean, think about it yourself, just for a minute. Do you believe that, presupposed that all actors are purely egoistic, rationally calculating individuals, would you believe that there would be a stable social order? Intuitively, no. So the question is then, why don't you believe that? Well, simple answer, and a bit cheap possibly, is because you're human. And as a human being, one thing that you can never establish on the basis of utility calculation is trust. So if the only thing that you know about you and other people on this planet is that everybody always acts only in their own favor and in their own egoistic interest, you would probably not even 
agree on that contract in the first place. You would never give up anything to anyone because you do not trust anyone. There is no trust in utility maximization. So essentially you would constantly have to do the maths as you go through this world and constantly recalculate if it would still be everybody's best maximal interest or best maximal result if they would follow this agreement that you have made. In other words, you always need to think about, so is it still so that everybody that surrounds me at this point in time is still having the best possible results for their activities if they follow this contract? And as soon as they don't, you need to be careful. So aside from the fact that this is pretty unrealistic, that you could do that and constantly run the math <laughs> if you if you would be living in such a world it is also pretty clear that the contract and the situation for utility maximization could change in a second and all of a sudden nobody cares about the contract anymore right because as soon as the first one breaks it everybody will break it so if we run the thought experiment of thomas hobbes to its logical final conclusion we must reach a point where we either say, well, if it is the case that human beings are purely egoistic and utility maximizing, there will never be order. Or we need to ask the question, if there is order, how is this possible? And as Parsons says, but I don't think you need Parsons because it's obvious, there is order, right? We experience it every day, most of us, at least most of the time. It's an undisputable fact that there is order. And there is also an undisputable fact that the premises of Thomas Hobbes would not allow this order to exist. Hence, there is a problem with the premise. And the question that needs to be asked is, how is this order that we experience on a daily basis possible? Because we have it, we see it. And now we need to look for the premise. Okay, I want to conclude this episode with, say, the solution to the problem of order that Parsons is providing and also outline the theoretical framework which he is using throughout the study. So let's start with the solution. The solution for the problem of order is norms. Wow, not particularly spectacular, admittedly, but... In fact, this kind of shady solution gets a lot of weight, a lot of theoretical weight as we go through his text and through his reasoning because it doesn't sound as if this would be somewhat innovative. But the way in which he arrives at it is actually pretty interesting and inspiring. However, in order to understand how he arrives at it, we need to understand where he comes from in his theoretical thinking, in his analytical thinking. And here we also go full circle and go back to the title of the book, which is The Structure of Social Action. So now the emphasis is on structure. The word structure with regard to action means that, according to Parsons, we can break social action down into very basic components. And this is exactly what he does. He calls this the unit act. Now, what is this unit act? Think about it like the 
basic entity of sociology, according to Parsons. So in physics, you once upon a time had atoms that were the basic entity, right? There are, of course, now debates what the actual, what the actual smallest parts would be if it is like quarks or Higgs bosons or whatever it is. So it's ongoing. And the same is, of course, true for sociology. And Parsons has taken the position that the smallest entity that a sociologist looks at is the unit act. And this unit act, well, somehow betrays his own premise that this is the smallest entity because the unit act consists of sub-entities, but they always need to be looked at in their totality. So I guess he's kind of saving himself here. So the unit act consists of ingredients, say. First ingredient is, surprise, an actor. Second ingredient is a goal. So an actor has a goal. And in order to achieve that goal, to reach that goal, an actor has means. However, an actor is also situated in a certain environment. Social, material, whatever it is. Therefore, this is another ingredient, the situation in which the actor is in. This is so far pretty much in line with, well, regular utilitarian action theory, right? Actor, means, ends, situation. But the crucial extra ingredient that Parsons is adding and which he claims all of those four thinkers that we will go through in these next episodes, have also added, is norms. So what's the point with norms here? Norms are not just simply one ingredient that is in that equation as well. Norms are somehow all over the place. Because norms do not only have an impact on the means that we choose, right? This would be the intuitive first idea, of course, there's a couple of options that we can have in a certain situation, but many of them are ruled out by norms because we do not believe that this is a good way of going about it, right? Most extreme case and most obvious case, we hopefully would not choose to hurt someone just to get concert tickets or something like that. Okay, well, truth be told, it depends on the concert, but nevertheless... You know what I mean. So there are certain norms that prevent you from doing anything. So norms are obviously affecting our choice of means. Some things are just considered unethical and we won't do it. And we won't even think about it, to be honest. So we don't make this choice consciously. It's just like ruled out from the beginning. But norms are at other places as well. Norms are also, most importantly, in the ends section of our activity. And not only do they have an impact on the choices of ends that are available to us, but they can also be ends in themselves. So there is a double complexity here. So first of all, we don't desire anything that is theoretically possible in terms of what could be desired, right? There are, for example, very strict rules when it comes to people we desire as love interests, Many people would usually be out of possible love interests when they are, for example, married to a good friend of ours. 
And on the other hand, we have a long history of planned marriages. So the love interest is then defined by what people are supposed to desire. And they are particularly not asked to follow their desires in the kind of bodily arousal way, but they are supposed to follow their political interests, for example. So clearly norms do affect means and ends of our activity. But as I said, they can also be ends in themselves. And this makes it even more complicated. But of course, we know, and maybe we are, at least sometimes in our lives, actors who want to make sure that every time they act, a certain norm materializes. Like climate awareness, for example. You want to make sure that in everything you do, your awareness and your environmental consciousness shows. So much so that in everything you do, this importance of enacting this ethical principle is at least as important as the goal under which it materializes. So when you buy clothes, it's not only or not even primarily maybe about buying clothes because you want to be warm or you want to look good or whatever it is. It is at least also as important that these clothes demonstrate and enact your ethical principles. So you can already tell that this addition of norms to the equation of social action makes things overly complicated, much more complicated than they had been before. And for someone who desires to create models of behavior, like economists usually do, this normative dimension can mess things up pretty severely. So many economic models from the last decades, also those who have won Nobel Prizes, are still running on that premise of means and rationality. And of course, there's a justification for that because what they are calculating and the, what these models are supposed to tell us is, of course, pri primarily based on actors who are told and created in a way that they may tend to be the egoistic actor that the model wants or needs in order to work out. So there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy here because you run a model on a premise which is realized by the very fact that human beings are trained into acting as such human beings in the context of economics or economic activity. So it's not directly sort of ignorant. There's some discussion at least that you can have about it. But nevertheless, if we want to account for social action and, when we, and if we want to account for social order, which we do as sociologists not only for social order or social action with regard to economics or economic activity, we cannot rely on this idea that all human beings are purely means and rational utility maximizers. And this is what Parsons tells us to do. And this is what Parsons tells us that those four theoreticians that he is presenting to us have done. So from here, we can take it to the next level and we'll do so in the next episode.